As the Russo-Ukrainian war trudges into its second month, the global toll of war is becoming alarmingly obvious. Hi, I'm Kevin, and this episode is a special one meant to cover just the war and its effects in anticipation of TOCs and NATs to give you a better understanding of the war and unique points that can make your analysis stand out. If you're looking for our regular news episode, that's still a thing, but watch both if you can. The more you know, after all. We just thought that this issue was getting large enough for an episode of its own. Broadly, I'll be going over five aspects. The front lines, the state of Russian citizens, the international response to the ongoing refugee crisis, the specific impact on the global economy, and off-ramps to it all. Front lines are where war happens, and in this particular one, the fighting has been brutal. Civilian cities and towns have been decimated, and in particular, the town of Bucha is being cited as an example where Russian forces are executing civilians. No true figure of casualties or injuries, but either civilian or militarily, exist, except the claims made on Twitter by Ukrainian generals and Russia's media megaphone. The true numbers and stats lie somewhere in between. What is known, however, is that after a round of peace talks in Turkey and a pledge by Russia to decrease activity, Ukrainian forces have retaken population centers near Kyiv, like Vankiv and Makariv, while losing ground in the east, particularly in Mariupol. Russia is likely realizing that fierce civilian resistance is crushing a lot of their chances to take more nationalistic areas. That's why they're backing out of Kyiv after all. At the same time, it's a lot easier for them to take locations in Donetsk and Luhansk, both because of some support for Russia in those regions, but also because the Ukrainian military isn't actually active in those regions, at least compared to Kyiv. Most of the combat in those two areas are being done by reserve regiments who end up having less training and experience, as well as civilian groups like the far-right and neo-Nazi-aligned Azov Battalion. Overall, this means an easy umbrella answer in the form that Russia's military strategy is changing. A retreat from Kyiv, fighting civilian protesters in the south, and a primary focus in the east would probably be along the lines of what I'd prep. Moving away from Ukraine itself, the cost towards the Russian population has also been really high. The actual opinions of many Russians on the war remain split. Kremlin-based media outlets and officials have claimed that over three-quarters of Russians support the war effort. Other independent polls say that number is about 50%, and one done by the organization founded by opposition leader Alexei Navalny finds that 53% of Russians call Russia the aggressor. Regardless of which of these sources you choose to believe in, it's still pretty diverse. In addition, the OVD group records over 15,000 arrests or detentions related to anti-war protests, but it's clear that dissent is crushed fast and without due process. While some like to speak out, they ultimately can't. The wave of economic sanctions intended to target the Russian government, and oligarchs in particular, have inevitably hampered the lives of Russian civilians. International companies like Apple, McDonald's, and even the tracksuit maker Adidas are leaving Russia as fast as they can. 
new economic laws passed by the Kremlin means that Russians need to convert any foreign-made currency into rubles, a vain attempt to maintain monetary sovereignty and supply as inflation goes through the roof. The country is also faced with shortages of essentials, like sugar and grain, as sanctions restrict how much they can purchase. Social media, like Facebook and YouTube, are facing increased regulation, and even complete bans. Facebook, for example, was taken off due to purportedly hosting extremist content. 200,000 Russians have also left the country due to these circumstances, many of them going to Georgia thanks to a year-long visa-free vacation policy. This political anger and probable brain drain could stunt Russia's economy even more, creating a problem that they'll need to address. Hungry people make a powerful political faction, though in this case, human rights violations might be enough to stop it. Those two concepts are key impacts you can add to a point on emigration from Russia. After all, the brain drain from Nazi Germany led to America's atomic bomb, another interesting parallel that you could draw on. But emigration continues in Ukraine, where a refugee crisis is challenging the Western world. Though not as much as you might expect. Three million people have left the country, more than three times the number of refugees displaced during the Kosovo War back in 1999, the last time Europe had to deal with refugees of this scale. But rather than facing discrimination on concerns of overwhelming immigration systems, the West has largely embraced Ukrainian refugees with open arms. The European Union, for one, is allowing Ukrainians to work and travel in member states for up to three years. International donations have also had a similar calling, with the Ukrainian government receiving over $100 million in cryptocurrencies over the past month, and the United Nations Refugee Branch also receiving $200 million. Even Japan is accepting several hundred refugees through a government-chartered private jet, Though Biden has promised to accept 100,000 refugees for America, no plans have actually been made yet. In fact, some thousand or so were actually at the US-Mexico border trying to seek asylum there. At the same time, neighboring countries like Poland are working with the United Nations to create cash assistance or direct relief programs aimed at giving refugees money now for them to find housing in the EU. There's a big question looming all over this. Who's going to pay for it all? Far-right groups who criticized a similar program in Germany intended for Syrian refugees a decade back for being too costly on the government are often now arguing the opposite for Ukrainian refugees. The EU has bonded together over the Russo-Ukrainian war, but it's also forgetting that member states' debt has brought the union to a brink before, namely the Germany-slash-EU's bailout of Greece. There's also another layer baked in, racism. First, there's a huge disparity in response when comparing this crisis to Syria, Afghanistan, and Venezuela, the previous top three nationalities of EU asylum seekers. There's also reports of added difficulty and discrimination to African and Asian nationals fleeing Ukraine, who have reportedly been prevented from boarding transportation out of the country, and also have been given low priority on food and application status. Overall, expect questions on what the world will do with refugees. Calling attention to examples of racism or a looming debt crisis that the EU might have on hand are more impacts that few will probably bring up, 
Except, of course, anyone who's still listening. Most people talking about the economy as it relates to the Russo-Ukrainian war are going to talk about oil. But there's a better example, at least in my opinion, that I think is much more unique. Agriculture. Food, after all, is what everybody depends on. Primarily, the conflict will negatively impact global food security. Russia and Ukraine produce over 30% of the world's wheat and 12% of global calories. If you're fighting a war, planting next year's crops isn't on your to-do list. And if you've got more sanctions than you do crop yields, no one is going to be buying. But in addition to the food itself, fertilizer is also on the decline. Modern agriculture requires tons of it. Even your GMO-free and organic produce still utilize some type of fertilizer. and Most of them out there are made with nitrogen and potassium. The second and third largest producers of potassium fertilizer, also known as potash, are Russia and Belarus, with a combined total of being 40% of the world's annual production. Guess which two countries have had the most sanctions levied on them in the last year? Exactly. For nitrogen fertilizers like ammonia and urea, Russia also makes up about 20% of that supply. Prices for potash have already gone up by 30% since the war started. All of this is to say that food supplies will go down, prices will go up, and inflation and humanitarian crises will worsen across the world. This is a pretty bleak guess for the future. But unless another country can step up in agricultural production, either in fertilizer or in crop yields itself, it's one we'll have to deal with later this year. The economic distress point is a really easy one to have, just in case you can't think of anything else. I'd warn about balancing emotions and tone though, just because how actually bad things could get. Luckily, not a lot of people seem to care about global potassium supplies, so it'll definitely make you stand out in a round in which other people are just going to be talking about oil all day long. I'm writing this on April 3rd, and off-ramps, or paths to leave war, are varied and often contradictory. With the shift in military strategy I covered earlier, the most probable option is a ceasefire with the secession of Donetsk and Luhansk, along with other agreements, like perhaps one that would bar Ukraine from joining NATO or the EU. In terms of optics, that's a huge win for Putin. He gets to keep Ukraine out of more Western influence and has secured two proxy states of, in his words, Russian-speaking people. If Russia manages to take the government of Ukraine by toppling Kyiv, the war isn't necessarily over yet. Guerrilla-style warfare would still continue, and the whole thing would likely be a stalemate with some type of government in exile. Ukraine, of course, can flip the script and start offensive campaigns to reclaim parts of the north and the east. If they manage, Ukraine's resilience is proven, and Putin has suffered a massive loss, both to his ego and to his military. The worst off-ramp isn't an off-ramp at all. A NATO-Russia war is like going 120 in an 80 highway. This is only going to happen, either by accident or by more aggressive actions on either sides. For instance, if NATO implements a no-fly zone, a world war is the expectation. If NATO or America wants to make that no-fly declaration an actual statement, they have to back it up with military force. Ergo, World War III. If Russia gets more aggressive and starts to look towards, say, Georgia or Poland, NATO would obviously get more involved. Quite stupidly, there's technically a chance that Russia overshoots and a missile lands in Romania, but given the incompetence of Russian forces so far, 
this might actually be the one that happens. Honestly, it's pretty hard to incorporate this information into a speech. Maybe as a B sub point as in effect of something. One place where this info is handy, however, is during cross acts. Pointing out how what someone said would lead into World War III is a strong way to shut them down. Unless, of course, they wanted to start it. That's all for this episode. Hopefully you've learned a lot, and will get the chance to incorporate some of the information inside of this episode into one of your future speeches. As always, thanks for listening to the Extempers Bible Podcast, and if you're interested in more free Extemp resources, including weekly questions and content briefs written by some of the greatest Extempers ever, like Manoth Velavali, be sure to check out our website, extempers.org, and our Instagram page, at Extempers Bible, both of which you can find in the description.